I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or um, your electronic devices or to the screen up here, and uh, we want to look at the Gospel of John chapter 2. There was a time in my life when I, I felt burdened by, well, with condemnation. Uh, I, I think I was a slave to feeling good about myself. And then the Lord Jesus forgave me of my sins and I made a commitment to following Him. And since then, I've been growing in freedom, increasing freedom, increasing joy, the joy of knowing that I'm counted righteous in Him. And perhaps you have a similar story as that or a story similar to Zach's. It's a very common perspective, isn't it? God wants me to be good. I'm able to be good. Church helps. And, and then at some point, we discover through severe mercy that our brokenness is much deeper and stronger than our own ability to manage. And we often succumb then to the temptation to cover our shame and hide our feelings of condemnation through some good deeds that we do or some religious rituals that we would fulfill or just being nice, Christian nice. But this framework is utterly powerful to make us acceptable to God or to help us to feel better about ourselves ultimately. And further, it typically ends in some measure of frustration or anger or despair. But thanks be to God for those with a story similar to that, similar to Zach's, similar to mine, uh, turning, trusting, following Jesus is the start, the starting point of something new. And the word to us this morning in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is the power of God to make us new. So I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy and authoritative and inspired and life-transforming word, and we read it like we read no other word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water 
now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. It's possible we know, O Lord, to uh, hear this portion of Scripture read and uh, though we hear, we don't perceive. Though we understand, we don't understand. Though we see words, we don't really see with the Spirit. We don't see anything glorious, beautiful. We don't feel any affection for Jesus. It's possible for this just to kind of be water off a duck's back, as it were. We know right now that flesh and blood is of no help in doing anything more than that. And so we turn to you, and we are trusting you, and we are relying upon you to pour out your Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit so that we can see the work of the Spirit so we can feel. The work of the Spirit so that we can taste. The work of the Spirit so we can respond. The work of the Spirit so that we might be changed. We turn to you for that now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps the most significant word in this text is the word signs. Rather than the word miracle, John uses the word sign. There's a significant, that's uh, something significant about that because what happens here is, is more than simply a display of supernatural power. Uh, what, what's happening here is pointing to something. It's directing attention to something. It is a sign. The happenings are pointing beyond themselves to something of much uh, larger significance. They point to something that's true about Jesus. They point to something far more significant than just the fact that he has the power to do stuff, like turn water into wine. This is an example of what John was talking about in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. The ones that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. So, 
The, the signs in and of themselves are they're certainly impressive displays of supernatural power. But much more importantly, they reveal something about Jesus himself. They real, reveal something about who he is. They reveal something about why he came. They reveal something about his glory. So the question is, what does this sign say? How does turning water into wine point to and f- somehow fill in or fill out our understanding of who Jesus is? It's, it's not just that Jesus is powerful. <laughs> I mean, if we would have been there, it, it would have certainly struck us that Jesus is powerful. But it's not just that Jesus is powerful. What is this sign saying about Jesus' glory? What does the sign say about who he is? What does the sign say about why he came? How does this sign of Jesus taking water, turning it into wine, function? How does it function? How does it get something done in our lives? In the lives of people burdened by feelings of shame and feelings of condemnation, feelings of inadequacy and embarrassment, feelings of being overwhelmed by sin. How does it get something done in our lives? In other places in this gospel, John shares uh, the sign or a sign, whatever that sign might be, and then immediately explains the meaning of the sign. So like in John chapter 6, for instance, Jesus takes five loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and he multiplies that and he feeds 5,000 people. (laughs) And then he teaches that it was a sign of something more. I am the bread of life. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who who cannot see. He opens the man's eyes, and then he explains, he teaches that the healing was a sign. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to the truth that Jesus is the light of the world, and that he came into the world to open spiritually blind eyes. In John chapter 2, there is no explanation. There's no explicit teaching from Jesus to help us to know what the sign is pointing to. And so we have to ask the question, what is this sign saying? What is this miracle of turning water into wine pointing to? And here's the answer. This sign points to the start of something new. Okay, I know that's not totally satisfying, but that's what it's doing. It's it's pointing to the start of something new. In Jesus, something new has begun. Something new has arrived. Something new is now available that was not available before. Jesus is making a statement. He meant for this act to mean something. To be full of significance. And so, look again. Verse 11. It says, This 
the first of his signs, the first, the first one, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, it's the first time it ever says this, his disciples believed in him. So Jesus turned water into wine in order to manifest his glory and essentially, I believe, say, I've come to start something new. And what I've come to start is better than what was in place before. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm going to show you where I get that in a minute. But the big question, the bigger question then is, what is this new thing that has started? What's the newness that Jesus brought? That's the question that we want to answer and it's the puzzle that we aim to solve. You know, so many people find John's gospel to be so uh, life-giving. I, mean, I tell you something honestly here. I, I've resisted preaching John's gospel because I just find it so puzzling, so cryptic at times. I think, what is he really saying? John, that is. And uh, what I believe is that, that John is doing is something very intentional. He, he, he communicates cryptically in puzzling ways in order to stir up curiosity. He means for us to get, huh, ask questions. want to lean into that, pursue that. In my laziness, I'd just rather have somebody just, oh, here's what it says. That's what it means. Um, maybe you're that way too. But we need to work at this one a little bit. And so let's imagine now that we are we're on a treasure hunt or in an escape room and our strategy is to identify the pieces of the puzzle. Then we're going to put the puzzle pieces together and we will find some resolution. We will discover the treasure. And, and I see five puzzle pieces in this narrative, perhaps more specifically, uh, five phrases that interpreted and understood together. You put them all together and it answers the question, what is the new thing that has started here? What's the new thing that has begun? And here's the first phrase. In verse 3, Mary reports to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, Running out of wine at a Jewish wedding at that time period would not simply been a matter of unfortunate inconvenience. It would have been seen as a complete social disaster. There were, there were often legal obligations related to what was provided in this wedding ceremony. The wine included. And such a cultural faux pas, it could lead to, it could actually lead to the annulment of the marriage or taking the groom's parents to court by the parents of the bride. In other words, they have no wine. That phrase was an occasion for 
public evaluation and thus an occasion for remarkable, stunning shame and condemnation for a lifetime. It was a stain that would always remain. So, imagine some, some sin or some aspect of your personal brokenness and the shame that would, would be brought about if that came into the light. Imagine what you would feel mortified about if, if people only knew about you. If people were to see that and evaluate that and uh, measure me by that, you'd be embarrassed and you would be broken and uh, it would be overwhelming. That's what they have no wine means. That's the situation. Here's the second puzzle piece, or the second phrase. My hour has not yet come. That's what Jesus says in verse 4. So, what hour is he talking about? And when is that hour coming? And at several points, as Jesus carries on his public ministry, this, this phrase pops up. In John chapter 7, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. Some have taken great offense at him, and they aim to do him harm. In John 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We know that Jesus' ministry lasted three years, and, and, and once every year during his three-year ministry time, he would, he would enter into the city of Jerusalem, and it was once a year because once a year there was the, this religious holiday, this celebration of the Passover, um, a, a time when the Jews would commemorate their miraculous exodus from Egypt. It was a big deal. And so it, here it's his first ministry year, his first visit to Jerusalem, but his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 8, again, he's, he is opposed as he's in teaching in the temple. And in John chapter 8, it says, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So throughout this three-year ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, John is reminding us, whether, whether it's through Jesus' own words or John himself explaining, Jesus' hour had not yet come. Not yet, not yet, not yet, and then we come to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, it's now the third year, and Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the third and last time and here's what it says in John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that His hour had come. To depart out of this world to the Father. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. You see what the hour is? All through His public ministry, here's Jesus. He's he's moving around. He's saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then, now. Now the hour has come. The hour refers to Jesus' death and His resurrection and and all the glory that's to be revealed in His death and resurrection. And so, back in John chapter 2 now... Jesus, he, he knows that there's time. You know, he, he knows he's got three years out in front of him. He knows that there's a lot of work that has to be done. This is a remarkable thing. He knows that in three years, he will die. He knows that that hour is coming. Jesus came knowing full well what He came to do. And He endured everything He endured, willingly and humbly and obediently, knowing what that hour was going to bring at some point. And now that work is just getting Started. And so he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. But even though that hour had not yet come, we ought not think about Jesus' ministry before that hour, before the cross, as somehow unrelated to the cross. We can't think of Jesus' ministry before the cross as therefore somehow irrelevant. Oh, you know, this is just kind of spinning his wheels for a few years until he gets to the real thing. That's not true at all. All that Jesus did beforehand, all that He did before that hour, starting with turning water into wine, is it's investing that final hour with meaning. Everything He did beforehand helps us to see and to understand the significance of what He's going to do when the final hour hour finally arrives. And loved ones, listen carefully to this. What Jesus is going to accomplish in that hour when He dies on the cross is to secure purification for sin once for all. Massively important to get this. Jesus' death on the cross in that hour secures purification for sin once for all. We have to hold on to that as we put all these puzzle pieces together. And so even though Jesus' hour had not yet come, he realizes that having stepped into now his public ministry, he knew it. He knew it was, this is the beginning. He knew that something had started and his glory, the glory of of justice satisfied and the glory of mercy and forgiveness being purchased, the glory of sin atoning life and death, it is just now, in this moment, beginning to be put on display. And that is why 
he addresses his mother the way he does, and that leads to a third piece of the puzzle, third phrase found in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? This is not the most important thing in the text. However, the sentence, these, these words, they, they symbolize something quite significant. And so it's worth pausing, worth drilling down here a little bit and thinking about what Jesus is saying. What's happening in, in this moment, in this phrase, is that a relationship is, is being redefined. Or it's what we used to call in my dating years a CTR. This is a clarifying the relationship statement. Jesus is clarifying the relationship. And, and so it, it's important to know that you know, his words and tone are not rude. He's not being disrespectful. It's hard for us to capture in the English language words that Jesus spoke in Aramaic translated then into Greek, then translated again into English. Jesus is speaking to his mother, but these are not harsh and disrespectful words as they could come off to us in our language. They are, however, um, a kind of a measured rebuke. So, Having now launched into the starting point of his public ministry, and having now assumed the weight of that, the understanding of that, and the responsibility of that, it's a, this is a heavy thing on him, he, he understands he is beginning now, starting now, his sin-atoning mission. And at the start, Jesus wants to make it clear, crystal clear, that everybody is standing on level ground. And Mary, just like every other person, must see and relate to Jesus first and foremost as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' earthly mother is included. Everybody will relate to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is no longer her little boy. Of course, there's still this filial tenderness towards his mother. We'll see it later when we get to John 19, most explicitly at the cross when Jesus looks upon her and he, he expresses his care for her and so forth. But more important than that, and way more important than that, really... What is of ultimate importance is that everybody needs what Jesus has come to accomplish. There is no one with special status. And just because you were born into, a, raised in a Christian home, went to church your whole life, attended a Christian school, your parents were missionaries, or even if you were the earthly mother of Jesus, personally repenting of your sin and turning and trusting Jesus as your sin-atoning Savior and living in daily reliance upon Him and accepting His claim upon your life as Lord is not optional. 
It's necessary. No family pass. Fourth puzzle piece. Fourth phrase. And, and this is one we could probably miss. So look carefully. In verse 6 it says, There were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. So the Old Testament law had very explicit instruction and regulations for washing of hands, washing vessels, and it was all for the purpose of maintaining a ceremonial kind of a cleanliness. Really, it was all part of of the ritual and religious system that God had Himself put into place to keep before the people their need for spiritual cleanliness. The whole purpose of this was to remind them again and again of what was necessary in order for them to enter the very presence of God. But I think we all understand those rituals as sensible as they were, as you know, helpful as they were. I mean, it's a good thing, right? To wash your hands, wash the dishes, keep things clean, it's good health and hygiene. You know, there's still expressions of wise living. Who wants to get sick? But at the spiritual level, at the spiritual level, the entire system was, it was not effective. The rituals in and of themselves were never meant to be effectual in removing guilt or covering shame and condemnation. Their entire purpose was to remind people of their great need for something greater and to generate an appetite and a desire, stir up desire for something greater that would actually get the job done. And the job being purification for sin once for all. So what was really needed was something that could really cleanse the conscience, could really generate spiritual life, could really accomplish spiritual purity and cause spiritual health. Something that would function. Something that would get the job done. And all that these six stone jars were effectual at accomplishing was like standing there. They just stood there as a silent but emphatic statement of their uselessness. The uselessness of religious ritual to get anything real done in terms of heart matters. So, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't just miraculously make wine appear in those six stone jars. Could have done that, right? You know, however. <laughs> and notice he doesn't just on the basis of his authority and power make wine appear in the vessels that are already on the tables. Could have done that. Notice what he does do. 
Instead, he chose to have these six jars filled with water, and then he took that and turned that into something new. It's it's worth noting as you're reading your Bibles, reading through the Gospel of John, that the way Jesus chooses to accomplish his signs is, is as significant as what signs he chooses to accomplish. One commentator says, every time we come to one of Jesus' signs, a question for us to ask is, how else might he have done that? It's a sign. It's it's meant to point to something. So Jesus could have simply made something happen. He could have used the other containers, but instead he uses these containers. The containers that John makes a particular point of drawing our attention to the fact that they were used in the ritual and rite of Jewish purification ceremonies. And Jesus uses the step first of water and then wine. That's significant. That's really, really significant. And why is it significant? Before we get to the answer to that question, I want to point you to the last piece of the puzzle. That's this fifth phrase, and it's found in verse 10 where the master of the feast says to the groom, you have kept the good wine until now. It's worth noticing that, I think, (laughs) that the bridegroom never says a word in this text. We never get to know him. We don't need to know him. You know, he, he, he doesn't do anything. Even though the master of the feast assumes that the decision to keep the good stuff until the end was the bridegroom's decision, we know better, right? We know. He didn't keep the best for last. He ran out of wine. Shame on him. Serving the best wine last was entirely Jesus' doing. And that is representative of Jesus doing, Jesus accomplishing something new. Something new has started. Jesus is introducing into the world, into people's lives, something possible that had not been possible before. And that takes us into the heart of the meaning of this sign. Back to verse 11 again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So what particular manifestation of glory, what particular manifestation or display of Jesus' beauty does this sign point to? And I think most basically it is the truth, the glory that Jesus brings new wine. Jesus takes the water of the law 
and of the Old Testament and all those religious rituals that are represented there. And he, he takes the water of that whole religious system of Judaism, which was, of course, important in its unique aim and, and purpose, but which was never intended to be an end in and of itself. Jesus takes that water and he turns it into the new wine of a living, open, abundant, dynamic, immediate relationship with God through himself. Jesus is the new wine. He doesn't say it explicitly like he did, you know, when he stands up after feeding 5,000 people and says, I'm the bread of life, or after he opens the eyes of a blind man, he stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. He could have stood up here and said, I'm the new wine. I'm the joy. I'm the fullness. I am that which has come to take that which was meant to point to me and turn that into reality, into life-giving hope. He could have said that. But in a way, John has already said that. You remember what John told us in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17? Go back there for a second. John 1, 16 and 17, and I'm going to read it in reverse order because I think this sort of helps us to kind of connect the dots a little bit, right? So here's verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Rites and rituals for Jewish purification. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So, you know, in our, in our culture, which has so abused alcohol, it, it's, it, it, I realize that for some people it is almost nearly impossible to hear the truth of John 2, 1 through 11 the way we need to hear it. But the Bible regularly uses the image of wine to speak of blessing. Um, it speaks of abundance. It speaks of joy. It speaks of fullness. It speaks of the favor of God. And so this good wine that got served last, this better wine that came out later, is a sign of the new wine of the grace and the truth that is now available to us in Christ. The law made us aware of our need. The law, the law pointed us. The rituals pointed us in the right direction. But the, those rituals, those religious rituals could never offer life in and of themselves. They, they're just means to an end. They're, they're habits of grace. They're not the grace itself. They can't offer life for our souls in and of themselves. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. 
I know you've heard this poem before. I think Ryan has quoted it. Maybe I've quoted it. You've heard it. The poem that says, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Much better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The better news is what Jesus brings. The better news. He bids us fly and He gives us Himself so that we can live life the way God meant for us to live. In Christ, there is now life and hope and joy and blessing and gladness and abundance. In Christ, there's a new way of relating to God that's real and immediate and it's, it's based on Christ's purification for sins where sin has actually been put away once and for all. In Christ, there is something new. What's new? Jesus Himself. He brings Himself. He makes Himself available to anyone who comes to Him and trusts in Him and follows Him. And let me just point you to one last observation before we close. This is in verse 11 again. It says this, the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. It's the very first time in the Gospel of John that we hear that particular phrase. His disciples believed in Him. We're going to hear it more. We're going to hear that phrase many more times, that they believed in Him. But this is the first time they believed in Him. This is just the start of believing. Jesus did many other signs. But these were written, these were recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you might have life in His name. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him, but to those who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. I mean, it's so interesting in this text to me. That these servants, the servants who, who were the ones who filled the jars, <laughs> they filled the jars with the water that turned into, the, into wine. They knew. They knew. John makes it a point to tell us that they knew. Verse 9. They knew where the wine came from. But you know what? It's Jesus' disciples who believed. There were some at that wedding as there are some today, many perhaps, who saw a display of power. But that's all they saw. There were others whose eyes were opened and their hearts were opened and they saw some of the glory of Jesus and they experienced life in His name and they followed Him. May that be so. May that be so for us. Let's pray.